At All About Women at the Sydney Opera House, we like to give a platform to feminist podcasts from around the world. And over the next few weeks at Ideas at the House, we're going to be featuring some of these live recordings. The Cut on Tuesdays is a podcast which launched early in 2019 and is designed, according to its host, Molly Fisher, to present a worldview that feminism is normal and expected. In this episode, Molly is joined by Sarah McVeigh and Clementine Ford to talk about what it means to create media that is by, for and about women. to be here in this insanely beautiful place. So thank you to All About Women for bringing us here. Um, I'm Molly Fisher. I'm the host of The Cut on Tuesdays. And that's a new show from Gimlet Media and The Cut. Um, We've been making the podcast for just about six months now. And this is our first ever live show. So it may go totally off the rails. (laughs) But I'm glad we're all here to experience it together. A lot of times we like to break our shows down into a few different conversations around a theme. And since we're a new show, and we've been talking a lot about what it means to make a podcast for women right now, we figured we'd start today's show with a big fundamental theme. Why women's media and why now? So to start things off, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I wound up here personally. Um, Then my beloved colleague, Sarah McVie, ABC alum, (laughs) is going to join me for a conversation about the thinking that goes into our show and what we make of being a women's podcast in 2019. Um, And then Clementine Ford, who probably needs no introduction here, is going to join me to talk about her experiences as a leading feminist voice online. So to start things off, my lifelong love-hate relationship with women's media. I think fourth grade, so this is when I was nine or 10, circa 1996, is the earliest version of myself that I can actually remember being. I remember that at the time. My favorite outfit was a Beatles t-shirt and tie-dyed leggings. I remember that I proudly self-identified as a feminist, as did all my fourth grade friends. And I remember that I could not get enough of teen magazines. I spent the summer after fourth grade borrowing stacks of old teen magazines from the library, which, in retrospect, is a weird thing to do. 17 and teen and YM, these are like the American equivalents of Dolly. They aren't publications that anyone expects to have much of a shelf life, which you could tell because they publish the same stories over and over and over. And even at the time, as a fourth grader, I think I understood that they weren't exactly realistic. But look, secrets and mysteries, how could I resist? Maybe it was something like the way another preteen girl might have read Twilight without actually thinking she was about to date a sparkly vampire. I just wanted to spend some time imagining myself into that world. What would it be like when I was an actual teenage woman? Of course, by the time I was a teen, I had already moved on to the harder stuff. When I was 14, my all-girls school class took a field trip to Washington, D.C., and we all bought copies of Cosmopolitan at the airport. (laughs) The lists of guy secrets and guy mysteries that you see here had been replaced with lists of explicit things to do with a penis. (laughs) Seared in my memory, thanks to Cosmo of this era, is the suggestion that you constrict blood flow to the penis by placing your hand in an L-shaped grip, which I guess would look like this. (laughs) I have never done this, but I have never forgotten it. Anyway, those magazines were fun for a while, but it quickly became clear that they also had nothing whatsoever to do with my actual life. By the time I was anything approaching an actual adult woman, I had pretty much given up on women's magazines. And then, in 2008, Jezebel launched, and women's websites became my drug of choice. 
These were infinitely more compelling than the old school lady mags had been. For one thing, first of all, they were funny. That was the most important thing. And they were feminist. You didn't have to turn off that part of your brain to enjoy them. They were self-aware. They understood how absurd so much of women's media had always been. And they were in on the joke. Back when I was in eighth grade, reading Cosmopolitan on the airplane with my friends, the best part was laughing about it with each other. With these websites, you got the sense that the outlet itself was laughing, too. The last 10 years were boom times for women's websites. Tons of new sites launched and expanded, and as they did, they developed their own vocabulary of cliches. It turned out that even without penis tips, there were still plenty of ways to talk to women and sound absurd. Even though these women websites were clearly smart and cared about feminism, they still often managed to sound totally infantilizing. It was like, how do you talk to a group of women without talking down to them? Sometimes the tone was cutesy and twee. Sometimes it was rah-rah girl power. Sometimes, even when they were talking about serious things, it was in this super simplistic, good-for-women, bad-for-women way that also seemed to underestimate the reader's intelligence. There wasn't a lot of room for disagreement or for nuanced criticism. And personally, I am a sucker for criticism. When I'm not making this podcast, I spend a lot of time writing book reviews. But it didn't feel like there was room for that in the world of women's media. I like to write things that let me take a close look at what someone is saying and try to figure out what's going on under the surface. But with these, it felt like you were either part of the slumber party or you were outside looking in. So, a few years back, I decided to write something critical about the websites that had driven me crazy over the new, in this next generation of women's websites, which I did, as you can see, at which point I received my comeuppance. After all these years of reading women's media, thinking about women's media, talking about women's media, and criticizing women's media, I was offered a job in women's media. You will not be surprised to learn that it is much, much harder to make a good website for women than to talk about what everyone else is doing wrong. So, here to talk through some of that with me now is Sarah McVie! Hello. Hey, Sarah. Hello, everyone. Got a lot Welcome of McVie stands in the house today, so... <laughs> So I read your article about all your criticisms of women's oh media. Oh my God. And I wanted to know why you then joined women's media. Can you tell me how you came to be at The Cut? Yeah, 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 sure. So what you should know about The Cut is that it got its start initially as a very, very, very simple fashion blog on New York Magazine's website. Um, it was basically a scroll with runway photos and little write-ups of what had happened. And then about... Um, seven years ago or so now, like around 2012, they decided they wanted to blow it out, expand it, make it a big general interest women's website. So they were hiring people who could help them do that. And um, one of the women who was doing that with them, Stella Bugby, had read this article I wrote and so brought me in to interview. And I remember um, at the time, one of my good friends from college was like, do you really want to work at The Cut? Which, like, internalized misogyny, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a fair question, because I was not a fashion person, and this had been a fashion website to that point. Um, but I remember going in and talking to Stella Bugby, who would become my boss, and her being like, well, you know, we just want to talk about women's lives. Like, why do women carry so many bags around all the time? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I can do that. I want to do that. I want to think about how women move through the world and present themselves to other people and think about what it means to be in the world in a female body. So that sounded good to me in the end. Right. So when she says, why do women carry around so many bags, <laughs> she's talking about trying to understand the lived experience of being a woman and trying to talk about women in a way that is different to what we've just seen. Well, yeah. So when you look at a lot of those examples of women's media as it has traditionally been, it feels like there's this divide between how people actually talk to each other. I mean, I don't want to get too gender essentialist. So women, but people in general, how human beings talk to each other and how women's media spoke to women. And so what I think we've tried to do over the years at The Cut is to 
translate the conversations we want to have into something that feels natural and conversational and that is like the kinds of conversations you might want to have with a friend. Um, and so how would you then do that with something like sex or grooming or these things the that staples, really are staples yeah. of women's media? Well, so I think a good example to look at is this episode of the show that we did on pubes, which got its start in a editorial meeting that we had at The Cut where I believe Maddie Agler, one of my colleagues, a writer at The Cut, brought up this Instagram that the model Amber Rose had posted where she was wearing a fur coat and no bottoms whatsoever. And Maddie was like, God, I'm just like fascinated by her beautiful pubic hair. Her pubes looked great. Yeah, they looked yeah. great. Um, <laughs> but that started this whole conversation in this meeting where what I remember most clearly is Izzy Grinspan, one of the other editors there, saying, you know, I feel like pubes and email are the same. You're alone with it, you feel like you must be doing it wrong somehow, and you just want to know what everyone else is doing <laughs> so you can figure it out. Which led us to put out a call to our listeners on the podcast and get, us, get them to tell us what they were actually doing <laughs> with their pubes. So let's hear a little of that. Um. This is the right number. I am calling to tell you about my pubic hair. I never thought I would respond to a question like this. I feel like I've been waiting for this question my whole life, and I didn't even know that. My pubes are brown, luscious. I feel like they look pretty normal. I love my pubes. So I guess what we were trying to do is, yeah. is, is to actually have a conversation that we might have among friends, what do you do? Rather than, should I have pubes? Is it not feminine? Well, exactly. To, to like take it out of the register in which something that seemed as kind of old hat, honestly, as pubic grooming for women's media. Uh, yeah, that feels old hat. And yet, you're used to seeing it discussed in terms of trends, like what is fashionable now, or what men want, or, you know, even as you say, like, is it feminist or unfeminist to wax your pubes? But you aren't really used to hearing it just discussed in terms of how people feel living in their bodies day to day, which was what interested us. Right, and what, <clears throat> that's been something that's been interesting for me coming from the ABC, where we don't have a perspective. We don't share our perspective. You have a perspective. <laughs> we don't share our perspective and objectivity is the goal at all yeah. times. And so to come to Gimlet and now to the cut and to see women talking about whatever it may be, whether it's pubes or politics, and having a really strong perspective on what they think and sharing that has, has been kind of strange and enlightening to me. <laughs> Do you, yeah, oh, yeah. Do you no, think, I think about like sharing what you think? Oh, I think it's absolutely part of what we do. And I think, if anything, what we like to imagine ourselves trying to do is being feminist and simply taking our feminism as a given. Like to present a worldview that takes being feminist, being pro-choice, being in our case like pretty left-leaning as just the facts on the ground, like to present a worldview in which that is normal and expected. And, you know, there can be liabilities to approaching things in that way as well, which I think we'll get to in a little bit. But honestly, that feels more exciting to me than necessarily treating everything we do as an opportunity to be directly didactic or to be kind of constantly arguing people into accepting our feminism. Right. We take it as a starting point. Right, and, and, and you kind of accept that probably your readers or listeners do too. Yeah. And so I'm keen to kind of talk about how that actually works in practice, like sure. with a story. And I'm thinking about um, the piece that Rebecca Traister, one of your colleagues at The Cut, wrote about gun violence, which was, you know, you read this piece and it kind of transforms the way you think about guns in America. Can you tell yeah, me what that story is about? Absolutely. Well, so I think one of the advantages of coming at the news in a super broad way with a feminist perspective as a given, with a perspective that prioritizes women's interests as your basis, is that it allows you to see things that aren't even ostensibly related to women's interests or that might not have conventionally fallen into that bucket in a new way. So I honestly, kind of horrifyingly, forget what mass shooting sparked this initial article, but it's one that ends up getting read over and over whenever there is a horrifying mass shooting 
because what Rebecca managed to do was to, by bringing a feminist perspective to the question of gun violence in America, unearth a different side of the question, which was that, in fact, when you look at the men who perpetrate mass shootings, one thing that they, by and large, have in common is a history of domestic violence and abuse of women. So that's a way that you can see something that is not necessarily on its face a women's issue and reveal a different side of it by coming at it with this perspective. Right, and, and we spoke to a woman called Kate Ranta who had been shot by her partner and it was down the road from... It was down the road from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Right, yeah. which was, of course, you know, and rightfully so, front page news for a long time. It was horrific to see, you know, t children, teenagers shot in their school, but what is never on the front page yeah. is the private violence that happens in suburbs all around those mass shootings. Yeah. Um, there's focusing on the woman's perspective when you're looking at these big general news stories, but then also it's been just a wild time to be in America. Yeah. <laughs> and in the last couple of years... Yeah, when, when did you arrive? You arrived I've been the, here for a year. Yeah. And, you know, I remember watching Trump elect, be elected from here and just thinking, what the hell? <laughs> like, people were shocked. But you, you, you were there oh firsthand and um, particularly well, shocked. Like, <laughs> Tell so me about this. This issue of the magazine with the Trump loser cover was closing, was getting ready to go to press the Friday afternoon when James Comey released his final letter about Hillary Clinton's emails, which, you know, in retrospect is widely understood to be the thing that cost her the election. But I think, you know, it's a testament to how little anyone saw this coming, that even as that was happening, everyone was still getting ready to send this out into the world. I mean, I've told you before, like, I remember around that same time in the, like, immediate week or so before the election, as we were planning what our coverage was going to be looking like, like, what we were going to be doing on election night. Like, I think there were a lot of plans to, like, go to Wellesley and, like, see what it was like on campus as Hillary Clinton was elected and, like, to talk to young girls about what it was like to, like, watch the election night returns come in. And, you know, we had all these plans, and I remember being in the office of Lauren Kern, who was at the time the executive editor of the magazine, and us kind of going, well, should we come up with a plan for if something happens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just seeming too horrifying to contemplate. So I think, you know, that certainly is the... And so the answer was, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no well, plan. But that's, that's, the, that's the liability of trying to look at the world in a way that takes feminism as a given, is that, that that's, of course, not the reality of the outside world, and that's how someone like Trump can be elected president. But it has been really exciting in the time since his election to see how women's interest stories and women, women, period, have come to the fore and become front page news, essentially. I mean, very quickly after the election, you know, just going to the immediate days and weeks following, we were talking about the Women's March on Washington, what would ultimately become the Women's March on Washington, and which would wind up being the largest single-day demonstration in U.S. history. That was something that no one saw coming and that was an exciting movement of women on behalf of change. Um, and over the following months, of course, like the fact that so many women were galvanized to run for office in the 2018 midterms in the U.S., and along with all of that, Me Too, as it unspooled, which, you know, I think my colleague Rebecca Traster has argued persuasively is in many ways, you know, born of a sense of this pent-up female rage that was kind of unleashed in some sense by Trump's election, by the sense that, like, you know, if business as usual was, did not apply to someone like Trump, business as usual should not apply to women either, and that the things that had been off the table should be actually on the table and confronted anew. Yeah, I'm struck by how there's like this timeline where Trump's elected and you really don't have time to feel kind of sad or frustrated about it because there's just so much news you've got to cover because yeah. it's all women-centric news from there on in. And I think it was the beginning of last year um, that I 
first paid attention to the cut when um, the writer Moira Donegan wrote a piece for you. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about what that piece was and how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so it actually, I'm going to go back a little before the piece actually came out to October of 2017, which was when the Harvey Weinstein allegations were first published in The Times and in The New Yorker. Um, in the week after those allegations first came out, you know, I, I'm sure you all remember all the conversations that were happening and how it felt like this was sort of causing women to talk and think in a new way about things that they had experienced in their own lives that probably felt in some ways far removed from something as almost over-the-top grotesque as the Harvey Weinstein behavior that was being reported, but that also clearly was a part of the same pattern, was a part of well, the Well, because it was this idea that it was an open secret in Hollywood yeah. that everybody had excused this behavior. Yeah, so I remember, I remember with friends, you know, on, on Gchat or on email, like, asking each other, well, what, what would, who, who are the people in our own world who, if something came out about them later, we would say, like, oh, everyone saw it. It was in plain sight. It was an open secret. And very quickly after that, like a week after the Weinstein allegations came out, a Google spreadsheet turned up in my inbox. Um, and when you opened it, it had the title at the top, Shitty Media Men. And what it was, was a list of men's names with allegations next to them, which really ranged from, you know, ostensibly small things like sending me really creepy DMs to rape and assault. And, and you, you, know, knew, you knew the names of these people. They were that in was, your circle. That was the crazy thing about looking at this list of names was that the ones at the very top were the ones who would have come to mind immediately for me. If I had to guess who in, in media, so in book publishing and magazines and websites... Um, who was creepy or who was worse? Yeah, the kind, of, the, kind of, the kind of knowledge that women had shared among themselves as a whisper network for years, since time immemorial. We have a clip was of down. Ruth, yeah. Ruth Spencer, your colleague at The Cut, talking about what it was like to watch. To see that spreadsheet right. populate. Yeah, let's hear that. I remember I saw on the list the name of somebody who had sexually harassed me at a previous job, but I didn't put him on the list but the allegation that was next to him was what had happened to me. And I remember thinking, like, the Whisper Network really is alive. It's yeah. alive enough so that, you know, we're all really aware of what has happened to each other. But the shitty media men list was this sort of interesting case because even as, you know, it was this moment when everyone was talking about how horrible Harvey Weinstein was, but as soon as the shitty media men list came out, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of... Well, it's scary. You kind of don't know what far? to yeah. do with it. Yeah. Like, and when, you're, when, when it's all media people involved, like, it's going to become a story very quickly. Well, and, and it so became a story very quickly. Yeah. It, um, BuzzFeed wrote a piece about the list, I think, you know, 24 hours or so after it landed in my inbox. And at that point, the list came down. It was only online for, yeah, a day at most. And... It disappeared, but it didn't disappear because people kept talking about it and kept thinking about it. And then the following January, it emerged on Twitter that the magazine Harper's was planning to publish a piece about Me Too and about whether Me Too had gone too far in which the author Katie Royfe was planning to name the woman who had first created the spreadsheet. And for me and for a lot of people like me, who had seen the spreadsheet, who cared about the kinds of abuses and behavior that were described in the spreadsheet, that was... Who understood it to be a... It meant It was meant to be a private warning system for Yeah, women. this was horrifying, because you knew that if this woman were to be outed, she would be subject to all kinds of abuse and threats and retaliation and potentially legal risk. And so there was a big question about what was going to happen, about whether Harper's would publish this piece, whether there was any way to stop Harper's or Katie Royfe from publishing this piece, what could be done. And then a writer named Moira Donegan approached us at The Cut and asked if she could write an essay for us about creating the shitty media men list, which she did. And I think, you know, at first we, um, we had known that Moira was the writer who had created the list and had explored the possibility working with her. She was, she was 
interested in participating and doing a reported piece about her. And so we had wondered whether, you know, ultimately it made the most sense to do a reported piece or to have her write this essay in her own words. But as soon as we saw what she had to say, we were kind of blown away by the power of hearing her story about her experience in her own words. Because what she said, which you kind of mentioned already, was that her thinking in creating this list had been that it would be a private warning system, a way for women to speak with each other and share knowledge with each other and to protect one another. And one of the things that actually I found really moving and striking about what she wrote was that she said, well, you know, I figured that no one seemed to care about the kinds of things women were saying in the list. So I figured no one would care about the list either. She was taken aback that it had gone viral and had attracted the attention. It had been taken seriously in the way that it was. Um, and it was wild watching, watching this essay take off online. I, I, I edited it and I remember hitting publish and then watching as readers started freaking out, <laughs> basically. Right. Which like, is a crazy feeling and makes you feel like you're doing something valuable with a platform. Totally, like and that. it's something that potentially wouldn't have happened in the same way had it been in you know, the Times or, or yeah. a different outlet because you were centering her in the story, you were allowing her to explain herself. Yeah. I'm curious to know, like, obviously it would have provided nuance and helped women understand what she was thinking about, but what was the broader reaction to the story? I was honestly shocked because part of, part of what I had wondered about all along with the shitty media men list was, you know, to what degree is this sort of inside baseball? Like, do people outside media care about something like this? And it became clear that the answer was yes, people did care. But I was, what was even more surprising perhaps for me was the way that people who I think would never ever in a million years you would have expected to be sympathetic to a radical socialist lesbian feminist like Moira <laughs> were tweeting this article approvingly. And I think that was a testament to the power of this first person voice, like to the way that she was speaking. She was testifying, basically. To an argument yeah. well argued. Yeah, to an argument well argued. I mean, I think a lot, this is actually funny because we at the podcast have realized that a lot of what we do at The Cut are essays, <laughs> which don't always lend themselves to narrative audio journalism. But in this case, it was really an example of the power of the essay, I think. Right, and it was also a positive example because people that, like you say, people that you didn't expect to support her or understand her or take her seriously yeah. did, and actually a lot of that abuse didn't come to her. Um, and, and that is a really real part of the reality of working in women's media and of having a feminist perspective and, about, and of sharing that online. Yeah. And so we'd love to have Clementine Ford join you now to talk about Wonderful. that. Wonderful! <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Welcome to the stage, Clementine Ford. Hi. Thank you for joining us. I'm so happy that you're here today. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. And I was just sitting there listening. I'm sure everyone else in the room feels exactly the same way. Everything you're saying just like sparking 10 different <laughs> I don't want to talk about me at all. I want to talk about what you've been oh, talking God. about. Oh, <laughs> God. Well, we can get there. We'll have time for questions at the end. But I wanted to start by broad strokes, asking you, you have been a leading online voice on feminism for 10 years now. What was the first piece you remember publishing that really seemed to like strike a nerve with people? Um, the first piece that really kind of changed everything for me, and it's it's a really awkward, awful one to talk about because it it was a tragedy, and yeah. it's terrible when something like this happens, and yet it opens up pathways for you. So it's it's a really terrible one to talk about, but. Um, uh, there was a woman in Brunswick, which is a suburb in Melbourne near where I live, named Jill Ma, who was raped and murdered on her way home one night. And there was it was sort of like a, a neat week between her disappearance and when she was found. So it kind of occupied in people's imaginations this really... Um, it, it, was, it was short enough that 
people's attention was maintained in the story. So there's a lot of like terrible things going on there, particularly in, in how we report about violence against women. Um, but in that week where she was still missing, there was the usual kind of victim blaming that occurred. You know, there was this whole spread in the Herald Sun newspaper by a criminologist who forensically examined through all these photographs why she chose to walk the route home that she did. Oh and what kind of woman makes these choices? Why wasn't she with her husband? And, you know, people were discussing um, how uh, Neil Mitchell, who's a, a talkback radio host on 3AW in Melbourne, was also saying, oh, you know, from judging from her Facebook page, she looks like a bit of a party girl. And because he'd found some photos That's of her shocking, though. pictured drinking beer. In 2012? Yeah, in 2012. Oh, my God. Um, and so I wrote a piece basically just calling out this victim blaming yeah. saying, you know, this is a woman who's missing and what we should be hoping for is that she's safely returned home and how can we be having these conversations? And it seems really crazy to say this now because we do actually have a lot of conversations about victim blaming and, and now the public is so attuned to pointing it out and to being aware when it's happening that, you know, everyone's well-practiced at doing the calling out. But in 2012, that conversation wasn't really being had. Yeah. Um, which is it's insane to think that it's only six years ago all of that has changed. Yeah. Well, what was the response like to your piece at the time? I think it was probably in, in very different ways to Moira's. It was a sense of being seen. Uh-huh. You know, um, as women, we all know... Uh, we all know the experience of feeling like our lives are being explained to us by other people and, and any testimony that we have about the realities of our lives are always dismissed. So the, there's that awful kind of, um, uh, you know, we're told, be careful, be safe, you know that the world is unsafe for you and you need to make wise decisions. When will you learn, Molly? When will you learn? <laughs> um, but that narrative is one that's set by men. Yeah. Because then they get to decide whether or not you can feel unsafe around them. They're telling you that you need to take precautions, but not around them. They're not a, they're not not, a threat to you. Yeah. As soon as women take that narrative into their own hands, uh, again, as Moira did, and as, as the women who participated in the shitty media men list did, and, and all of the conversations that we're having around me too, all of a sudden the power dynamic shifts. Yeah. And there is a certain kind of man who gets extremely uncomfortable around that and they need to know they need you to know that you are not allowed to have that conversation that in fact when you repeat back to men the same things that you have always, that we've been told our whole lives that you know well I I'd be really I'm really careful when I walk down the street at night or I I don't go out after dark or I I don't go uh, and have drinks with strange men whatever it might be yeah. Oh, it's a bit paranoid, isn't it? <laughs> a bit paranoid Ooh. there. Like that sounds a bit Take like you hate all men, and you know, you, I really feel like you need to acknowledge that not all men are a threat to you, particularly me. <sighs> so I feel like that's kind of what resonated with readers at the time was this sense that that um, that relief that we feel when someone actually puts into words what is swirling around in our own heads, and also reminds us that this mass cultural gaslighting that we've experienced since birth is actually what's happening. You know, that, that we are entitled to control our own narratives. We are entitled to go out and have a drink if we want. And you know what? More than anything, we're entitled to get home safely at night and not be fucking raped and murdered. And, and if that happens to us or to one of us, that we have to challenge all of the people who will line up with their mitigating circumstances or, or line up to create excuses or reasons why she might have thrown herself in the path of danger or whatever it might be. And I, I think that that was the kind of the turning point. Yeah. And what, were you surprised by the way it resonated with people? Um, I, I wasn't surprised because as I said, like I think that these are all feelings that we have. Yeah. Um, what I've been really glad of in the intervening years is seeing so many more people having these conversations yeah. and so many more women who um, previously, not, I'm, and I'm not saying that this was down to me at all, I think it's, you know, there's so many influences that are changing the way that we're having these conversations, but so many women who at some point in their lives were able to make the decision that they were no longer going to be silent about their own experiences and they were, they would own their testimonies about their lives and that they would be confident even though they knew the backlash that would come from that because I've I've over the years have been contacted by so many um, young women in particular who 
have talked about how they've, you know, they've shut down their Facebook accounts, they've shut down their Instagrams and their Twitter because they've said something that some man hasn't liked and been bombarded with rape threats or death threats and it's too much for them. Yeah. Because of course it is. <laughs> because of course that's too much. Yeah. And This I should not be a surprise. And I think now the shift is that actually I see more and more women who are confidently speaking back to that and as, as hurtful and as frightening as it is, actually practicing what it feels like to shout back in the face mm. of that. And also even, even more blessed than that, seeing women shouting back as groups, you know, and coming to each other's aid and support. And you, you mentioned the kind of abuse that women can receive when they speak out, be it on Twitter or Facebook or wherever. You have received some horrifying, some truly, truly horrible abuse. Yeah, I'm oh. really lucky. Oh, God. <laughs> Would you be comfortable reading sure. some of what, what you've received over the years? Sure. Um, and I guess like, I'll just preface this by saying that they range in severity, but some of the things that I'm going to read, I won't read for too long, but some of the things I'm going to read are pretty intense. So um, the first, uh, oh, so someone wrote this to me. It's really a shame that a man wasted sperm on a low-life cunt like you. Should have masturbated into the toilet. <laughs> and I loved that one because I thought, I, I just really... <laughs> I really loved how it assumes that sperm is in really short supply. Oh, God, yes, of course. Like, <laughs> it'd be wasted. Don't waste the sperm. The precious sperm. Um, I would love to attend one of your events. Please let me know when your funeral is on. Um, I hope she gets raped with a dildo made of rusty nails. And then this is probably the worst one that I've ever received. And I'm... Uh, it comes from an email address, clementinewillberaped at gmail.com. Misspelt my name, though, so... Thank you. I hope someone rapes you brutally with a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. Destroy your ugly cunt up some more. You deserve to be hung like a pig in a slaughterhouse and have your teeth and tongue ripped out so you can shut the fuck up, you man-hating feminist dog. And that's the first two lines of a ten-line email. Jesus. But this one was my favourite. Um, You've really got <laughs> quite a... Feminism is just an attempt by the ugly women to bring the hot women down to their level. <laughs> and you're about as ugly as it gets. Do you even get laid? I bet you go through a stack of batteries every week for your 12-inch vibrator, which probably doesn't even touch the sides of your gaping cunt. You know you're a piece of shit, don't you? I hope you get the worst disease imaginable. Fuck off and die. Um... It's insane to imagine, to me, to imagine the men sitting down and being like, okay, time to write this. You know, like, yeah. what is the psychology? I mean, we don't need to go into oh. that, but it's like... <laughs> um, Warm up the old laptop. It's funny, because there's a, there's a satirical newspaper here called The Batuta Advocate, which yeah. actually does really great progressive stuff. <laughs> um, they won today, they wrote about stay-at-home sons. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, have, they have an article that they... call them fail sons. Yeah, oh, really. Yeah. They've, they've done one in the past where they, they profile the MRA who, you know, wipes the twisties dust off of his fingers and slugs the Mountain Dew and sits down to write an email about Clementine Ford. Um, oh, well, so you've, though, you've actually reported some of the men who have sent you abuse like that. I think there was, in 2015, a man who you alerted his employer that he was behaving in this way. Yeah, and it wasn't even, you know, it was, he just called me a slut on my Facebook page. Yeah. It's not even... That's not even the like, things you just read. It's so irrelevant, really. <laughs> um, but, but the reason I was so annoyed about it was because I'd posted this photograph. Because one of the things that I do and one of the, the powerful things that I think women can do is to, um, is to screenshot and display alongside the names of these men and hopefully alongside their faces the things that they are willing to say to you in private. Um, and they don't like that, funnily enough. Um, and I always sort of say, well, you're always accusing me of censoring men, but I'm actually just giving you a platform. So, you know, more people amplifying you, yeah. yeah. I'm helping you, if anything. Um, anyway, so I'd posted this photograph of this man who said to me, he'd responded to something, you know, I write a lot about men's violence against women and uh, am met with threats of violence because of that. Um, and he'd said, you'd gibber less with a cock in your mouth. And I noticed that his Facebook photo had him pictured with his two small children. Because a lot of them, of course, have kids, you know, and, yeah. and I can never figure out if it's scarier that they're raising sons or daughters. Um, 
often the, the fathers of daughters will say, well, my daughter won't grow up thinking that she's a victim. Um, so anyway, he posted this, and I, and I posted a photo of him saying they always have daughters, and they, or they always have kids. And this guy, Michael Nolan, responded to that just saying, slut. And it just pissed me off, because I thought, you know, one of the things that infuriates me, as I'm sure it does you, and probably every single woman in this room, is being told that we can't talk about the way that, the rampant misogyny that men express towards women, because we're not acknowledging the, and they always pull this statistic out of it, because I've certainly never seen it. 99.999% <laughs> of men who are good men and who would never ever do anything to hurt a woman. And then you see things like this where you ha there is an ample opportunity here for men to step in and say, this isn't acceptable and, I, and I, I'm standing with you women. And, you know, a lot of men do. Yeah. Not that I'm prone to giving out acknowledgements for that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for him, for someone to come in and, and then, f like, further perpetuate the sort of sense that you're under attack or that you're an object of ridicule and mockery by using these very sexualized terms and threats... I just thought, fuck you, Michael <laughs> Nolan. Yeah. Um, and he'd had his, he'd, he had his, his employment place listed Clever. alongside his, his Facebook page. Yeah. So I just sent them an email. And I made sure to cross-post the email on my Facebook page so they really knew that people had, you know, the, the, the service departments for whom he worked mm. really knew that people were looking at it. Um, and they responded really quickly and positively and he lost his job. And he actually posted, someone posted on his page publicly, you know, is it true you lost your job? And he was like, yeah, nah, whatever, big deal. But it was, what was funnier was the response to it. So he lost his job, this 21-year-old guy, and all of a sudden I was like the devil incarnate. So how dare you, how dare you ruin a man's life because you can't handle words on the internet. You know, by the way, the people who are least able to handle any form of words on the internet that are critical of them are white men aged between 15 and 75. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we're the ones with the problem. We can't, how, you, you can't handle a simple little rape threat? <laughs> um, anyway, so, so I was met with even more abuse for this. Some guy wrote to me and said that he hoped that I would sit on a butcher's knife so that I would... I should sit on a butcher's knife so I'd never reproduce. Um, and the narrative, what was interesting to see was how the narrative around it rapidly changed. So you talk about fake news now. Yeah. Um, Michael Nolan suddenly ceased being a 21-year-old single man who worked as a, you know, a night manager for a service department. And he all of a sudden became literally, as people were describing it, a father and husband. And it was because this incident had happened, I think, in November or something. It was right before Christmas. Oh, God. <laughs> and so this poor family... I'd Passed forced, out. I'd forced this poor family into homelessness. They were no longer, no longer <laughs> able to live. And Santa would not be visiting the children that year. And then... This was suddenly became the truth in people's minds that I had deliberately gone out to destroy the life of a hard-working father and husband. And this is what feminism does. It's so... I mean, it's just in an ongoing way fascinating to watch the language of victimhood as it's deployed yeah. By, <laughs> yeah. by people who are clearly not the victims. I mean, you see that across the board. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, and I also think that largely it's because... Um, one, like, one of the most wretched responses that I've ever received to something that I've posted on my Facebook page was just a, a meme that I'd posted that was in a quotation, how, quote, how is that racist, end quote, dash, white people proverb. Um, which is hilarious. <laughs> white people say that all the time. Oh, how's that racist? You know, in the same yeah. way that men say, how's that sexist? And honestly, like, the white men who lost their minds over this. <laughs> and then you see them, this is like the, the eternal frustration that we are very legitimate experiences of violence mm -hmm. and whether, whether just via threats or actual attacks on our lives are dismissed always as being not a big deal. Are you sure you remembered it properly? Are you sure it didn't? Oh, what was it that um, Brock Turner's father said? 20 minutes of action, you know? And yet these sort of, like, abstract, uh, uh, quote, at attacks yeah. on not even the lives of, of white men with power and privilege, but just their perception of someone encroaching on that, they're the really serious threats. So in the past, I've written on Twitter, kill all men, or, you know, all men must die, usually in response to people who say, oh, feminism's just man-hating bullshit and you just want to destroy all men. And so, of course, you respond, kill all men. It's so absurd. As one does. It's so absurd. Like, it's such a ridiculous yeah. premise. Um, and, you know, 
the 20 odd times that I've said something along those lines was very quickly kind of uh, pasted into a collage that for years, even I haven't said it for years because men just can't, they just don't get humor. So you know, sensitive. It's, it's just not very funny. No. Um, <laughs> and that just now is used as like, this is the real threat. This woman who said kill all men and she's literally called for all, ch all, all men to be slaughtered. <laughs> but your rape jokes, that's just, that's just a bit of yeah. funny, you know, banter. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you haven't recently called for all men's death, but in what it, <laughs> well, other ways publicly. has your response to abuse evolved over the years? Um, I mean, I guess I still do the, I still like to screenshot yeah. share and shame. Um, in, the, in much the same way, Al Alexandra Tweeten's here this weekend, you know, the, the creator of By Felipe. So in much the same way that Alex screenshots and shames the men who sexualize mm -hmm. and sexually abuse women online um, and in spaces like Tinder and stuff like that. I think that it's effective in making men who use that language against women uh, understand that, that they can't do it in silence and secrecy and that if you're going to say those words, then you better be prepared to stand by them publicly. But I also feel like it actually creates a lot of joyful um, collaboration between women, <laughs> you know, just to see that... Because the, for me, the best response to trolls is not to deal with them earnestly. Mm -hmm. You know, never engage earnestly with someone who does not come to you in good faith. You know, if they, if you, they've just, they just disagree with you, but they want to have a good faith discussion. That's one thing. Yeah. But if they're just trying to undermine you and niggle at you and humiliate and mock you, we can stand there until we're blue in the face and try and, try and impart to them or make them see women's humanity. But the very fact of us doing that just makes them laugh even more. Look at yeah. her, look at her. She's so sincere. Isn't it funny? Um, what they hate is being laughed at or mocked. And that, to me, has been the best response to men who use this kind of language and behaviour is to put them on blast in a way that makes them feel like... It suddenly shifts the spotlight. They've put the spotlight on you trying to shame you and make you feel unsafe, but it's you getting this mass power of people to shift the spotlight back onto yeah. you. Yeah. And they hate it. Well, there's that Margaret Atwood line about how, you know, men worry that women will laugh at them, women worry that men yeah. will kill them. And I feel like over the years there's been a lot more emphasis placed on the... Mm women fearing that men will kill them, half of that, rightly. But in the last couple of years, I think we've been seeing what it looks like, the depths to which men fear women's laughter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They just, they... And I think one of the problems is that one of the reasons why a lot of them take that stuff so incredibly seriously, even when it's very clearly satire that's being directed at them, is because... A particular white man is it just has never had the experience of being ridiculed. So they don't understand that they could at all ever be the target of a joke. So it must be, it must be very serious. Yeah, you know, because everyone else that it's that everyone else gets to be laughed about because that's that's we've got to have you got to have a laugh. No, but laughing at a man have, constitutes ruining his life. Yeah, exactly. It constitutes ruining, ruining his life. And the worst thing that you could possibly do is ruin a man's life. Yeah. Has Me Too gone too far? <laughs> Very scary time to be a man in the world. I know. Or to, be, or to be the father of a boy, as I'm sure you understand. Very scary yeah. time to be the father of a boy. I mean, or, yeah. they, they, they can't even rape girls anymore and, you know, <laughs> say they didn't mean it. Yeah. Um, well, so how, how has having a son yourself shifted how you think about any of this stuff? Um, I feel like it's, uh, you know, I love my son so much and he is so, he's two and a half, so he's in that perfect little bubble of childhood where, um, and I don't, I think that this is, it's not like little boys are any different to little girls, but a lot of parents do report that when, that their sons are so soft at this mm. age and they're joyful and they're full of cuddles and love and all that kind of stuff. And at some point we know that is just completely beaten and shamed out of boys. That's patriarchy's impact on men, and, and you know, it's like Bell Hooks writes that the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of all males is not violence towards women, but violence towards themselves. Um, and it's about excising those parts of them that can be used to shame and humiliate them later on. So prior to having a son, I was very much invested in like how patriarchy impacted women, and I understood that there, that there was this theoretical harm that patriarchy had against men, but I probably didn't care about it that much because I just thought, well, I've got bigger things to care yeah, about. Yeah, fair. But now I have a son who I, I have the dual concerns of, firstly, 
not wanting him to grow up in a way where he, the harm that he experiences at the hand of patriarch at the hands of patriarchy um, causes deep hurt to him or uh, c cuts off parts of his expression or causes him to kill himself one day. Um, but also, I don't want the harm that he that he is at risk of experiencing to be weaponized against women and other people who he is instructed are weaker than him. Yeah. So that's kind of the dual project of like, how do you pr protect them, but how do you also stop them? Because um, I think that, you know, like in my, uh, in my second book, Boys Will Be Boys, I write that everyone's very comfortable in this sort of hypocritical way that um, we we're all very comfortable talking about the risks that women face, but we're not comfortable about women being in control of that conversation, mm -hmm. right? So everyone's very at ease with the idea that they're afraid of what the world holds for their daughters, that they're scared of all of the different ways that their daughters can be hurt. But very few people want to acknowledge or confront the possibility that their sons might be the one to do it. Yeah. And I feel like we have to be very honest about that risk, you know? Every, the, the one connection that all men who harm women have. They might not have a female, female partner or daughters, but certainly a lot of them use those as shields against them. But the one connection that they have is a parent. Yeah. Like, all boys have a parent. And they, that parent doesn't... You know, a lot of those parents feel like they raised good sons. And in, in a lot of cases, it's because they they assumed from the outset and wanted to assume that their son could never do anything bad. And if their son did do something bad, it can't have really been bad, which is why, they, which is why the narrative around rape gets, um, rape and sexual violence gets so willfully muddied all the time because people will only accept as, a re as the reality of rape and sexual violence what happened to Jill Ma. Mm -hmm. You know, the stranger danger, you meet a man. An alley, yeah. Yeah, but... You know, if Jill Ma had gotten home safely that night, if Adrian Bailey had decided that he, it was too risky to follow her down the alleyway, even though she'd made him mad, as he later told police, because he was just trying to be nice to her and she fobbed him off, so he needed to punish her. If, he'd, if she'd gotten home safely and gone and she'd written on Facebook, just a heads up, everyone, there's this, a creepy guy walking around Sydney Road and he, you know, he stopped me and I managed to get away, but he didn't really do anything, but I just got a vibe off of him, so just a heads up. And if that post had been shared and went viral, she would have gotten a lot of support initially, but then very quickly it would have been flooded by people, yeah. mainly men, yeah. saying to her, you're ridiculous. He was probably just trying to talk to you. You're being so paranoid. This is the problem with women. You just, you demonise all men and can't men even talk to women on the street anymore? Because the only valid complainant is a dead woman. That's the only time that you're allowed to say that something bad really happened. It's the only time you have proof that it was serious. Yeah. Well, I know I would love to have time for questions, so I want to ask you one last thing. I understand that you were on book tour in the U.S. around the time of the Brett Kavanaugh yeah. hearings. And I am so curious what that was like, what kinds of conversations you were having with people, what you were seeing and hearing, just because that yeah. was, I know, a crazy time to be doing what I do, but I'm very curious how it looked to an outside observer also. I mean, it was, it was a really fascinating time to be there. I did a very small book tour. It was five cities and they were all very progressive cities, so I wasn't really seeing, I guess, what people would say is the real... <laughs> Like, why liberal cities don't get to be the real America, I don't know. But um, it, was, it was heartbreaking. And as if it was an outsider, it was heartbreaking to see just the blatancy of it, you know? Just, I feel like we all, all of us watching just had that experience of just unbridled rage and an inability to express it properly because it doesn't matter what these men do. It doesn't, they will always shift the goalposts and they will always shift them in their favour. And I, I actually did an event in Washington, D.C. with yeah. Soraya Chamali. Yeah. Um, and because that was right afterwards. So it was really interesting being in this sort of circle of very politically engaged women in the capital who were just astonished, you know? It's like there's no words to kind of express it. Well, it was so crazy-making also, I think, because you saw how Christine Blasey Ford presented yeah. herself as someone who on paper is 
you know, society's definition of a perfect victim, basically. You know, she was like able to articulate her story and calmly describe what had happened to her. And she was from a very privileged background and was someone who was recognizable as a victim, was legible as a victim to but it's the still, mainstream media. And it still wasn't enough. Yeah. Still not enough. I mean, we've got an, like a vile, despicable columnist in this country called Miranda Devine. Who, <laughs> um, you know, her mo most recent thing was to come out and basically discredit the George Cardinal George Pell was convicted of sexual abuse of children, and she's come out and said, "Oh well, she doesn't believe it." You know, discredits the the victims in that case. This woman who ordinarily talks about how we don't listen to male victims of abuse, um, she wrote the most appalling thing about Christine Blasey Ford, in which she completely infantilized her, talked about how she'd basically simpered her way through the hearings. That she, one one piece of criticism she had for her was that she turned up with blow dried hair. You know, and you think this is the she did everything that she was supposed to do. Yeah. And they will still, sh again, shift the goalposts, you know. And, and Brett Kavanaugh, similarly to R. Kelly, you know, in the Gail King interview that yeah. just recently aired, they can scream and yell and be as angry as they like, and that's legitimate rage. Men who are angry are allowed to be angry, but women who are angry are hysterical. And I, I think that that was just... That was the feeling that I had. You know, I remember one morning just after he was confirmed, just standing in the kitchen and just suddenly starting to cry because and I don't even live in America. Like, the Supreme Court's rulings aren't going to affect me. But, of course, I care about women who do live in the country. Um, but just sort of crying because you just think it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. It's never going to be enough. And they will always maintain power for themselves, jobs for the boys. And they don't give a shit if he raped her or tried to. That's his... What, like, he was at a party and That's he was it. drinking. That's yeah. just what boys do. Should boys' lives have to be ruined? For 20 minutes for, of action, yeah. For, you know... Yeah. Well, so how do you keep going in spite of that? Like, what... what in, when it comes to that kind of hopelessness, like, how do you keep doing the work that you do? I think that conversations like this are really inspiring and, you know, I guess it's like how, does, how do any of us keep yeah. doing it? Because if we didn't, we'd have to just, you know, crawl into a hole and <laughs> become hermits, which actually is not such a bad idea. Not awful, but, yeah. Um, not a book. Yeah, I just feel like, I guess, against all evidence, I still have hope that maybe things will, will change. And I do think things are changing, yeah. you know. It's incremental, but it is... There is something powerful about feeling like you're part of a fight. Yeah. Well, on that note, should we open it up for questions? Yeah. yeah. I think we are very low on time, so we have time for probably like three questions, two questions. I don't know, but who, anyone, anyone? Let me ask you a question. Sure. Yeah. What's your perception of the difference in? Because to me, to me, and every Australian woman in this room will will say that Australia is a disgustingly sexist country. Oh wow. Um, what's your perception coming here? Does it feel more sexist to you? Does it feel less? Well, okay. So, so I've only been here for two days, and I like have <laughs> had jet lag. Like I'm so. ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I've still been in my like my supportive female cocoon for most of that time. I mean. I do have to say, like, this is maybe not as directly to the point of feminism, but I was talking with Sarah when we were driving around earlier just about healthcare in this country and how she, she was saying, describing how everyone from left to right on the political spectrum in Australia was incensed when it was proposed that people would have to pay, I think it was $7 as a copay yeah. for a doctor's visit. And even if that is not directly on its face, a women's issue, living in a country where everyone just takes it for granted that healthcare should be a human right in that way seems mm. enviable from where I sit, you know? So I haven't had a chance to experience... Silver lining. Yeah, there, there's, there's some stuff. I mean, I feel like probably you could make a solid case <laughs> that Australia and the US are neck and neck, sexism-wise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we're out of time. And we're, oh. We get pretty strict about that. Okay, here, well, I don't want we to... we out? Yeah? Oh. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like I was talking to Gemma Hartley, the author of Fed Up, last night, and she was, we were t discussing the difference in um, reproductive health care yeah. and maternal health care. And I went through, you know, the public hospital system in Melbourne to have my baby. It's like one of the best hospitals in the world. And there were birth complications. You know, I'm sure in America I could have walked away with a 
$150,000 hospital bill or something. Yeah. But it was totally free. And I don't understand how in America people can... I guess that brainwashing is so has been so strong about socialism and what it means that, that they can argue so passionately against their own interests. It's staggering. Well, it also, like, it just, it seems like it's robots talking about it when you hear people making the case for, like, you know, the idea that people would be interested in shopping for healthcare, <laughs> like, that it would be appealing and, like, an appealing exercise of choice and freedom as a consumer to choose your healthcare plan is wild. Yeah. No one wants to spend more time thinking about insurance. But also, like... Just give people medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying. Well, do you, think, do you think Trump will win 2020? I don't want to think about it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's something that anyone can rule out. I think it's mm. very Do you possible. think he'll be impeached? I don't know. Well, but like what? I don't know. Well, but I think... Let's go. Yeah. After this, we'll go cast a spell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll cast a spell. I just don't know. Yeah. I feel like I, I, you know, certainly one of the lessons of the 2016 election for everyone was not to get too confident in any kind of prediction. So I am disinclined to hazard much of a guess, but I'm not optimistic. It would be great, though, if the New, uh, New York Mag could... Actually use that We cover. will do our best, yeah. <laughs> Might just get a printout of it. You should. I saved several copies, but yeah, Barbara Kruger, she's good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank this you. This has been a delight. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Molly Fisher. Clementine Ford. <laughs>